Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Welcome to the Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today is a longtime friend, Nels Pasternak. Nels, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So a little backstory of who you are and why I had you on. Uh, you are a special education teacher in Eugene uh, in the Life Skills Program, also a chair of the OEA Special Education Union. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks for the special education committee uh, for the for oea nice yes so we have a lot to talk about uh one of the things that i wanted to discuss was the challenges of distance learning you had reached out to me and talked about coming on the show even i mean pre-covid you wanted to talk about some of the needs of special education students and you know and your passion for that the work you do with that so let's start off talking about how you got into it. What motivated you to want to get into special education teaching and, and whatnot? So tell me a little bit about that. Graduated from U of O and then got into teaching and, and tell me how that started. Well, how, how far you want to go back? Because I mean, that's a long, when I look at my life experiences, um, socializing and being with people who are differently able, you know, it really started when I was a young child. Uh, I don't know if you want to go back that far or just start from the college days or. I mean, I think you can touch on it. You know, let's go ahead and touch on that because the motivation, I think, is important. All right. Well, you know, um, my mother had a disability. She had epilepsy and she actually passed away when I was two years old and um, had a seizure and she didn't have proper precautions in place or like protocols. So I was home alone with her and she just fell the wrong way and died. So, you know, you don't really remember that being a two-year-old, but looking back on it um, all these years later, I realized, you know, maybe if she would have had a good, like, IEP team or a special ed 504 plan or some of the things we do now, then she wouldn't have been in that predicament for that to happen. Then, you know, um, when I was living in New York, I was born in New York, we had a um, neighbor who was um, had Down syndrome and intellectual disability, and he... Uh, was like our adopted uncle we called him uncle jerry and so we would hang out with uncle jerry you know sometimes and then when i moved out from new york i lived in pine ridge indian reservation in california before north Vancouver bay and finally eugene but every year you know through my childhood for several years he would send me a birthday card and it would just have the scribble with like you could make out the u and, and the jerry and he would write his name in cursive and that would be all he would say because he couldn't write very well but i would get a birthday card from uncle jerry and i I didn't really appreciate it properly as a little kid, but like looking back on it now, you know, you appreciate these things more. Right. 
And then, you know, uh, when I moved to North Bend Coos Bay, there was this kid named Bruce who was, um, he had a pretty significant intellectual disability. And he was in my elementary school class. And every now and then Bruce would get really upset and he'd do things like roar and jump up on the desk or throw desks. And I used to go home and complain to my parents, like, why does Bruce have to be in my class? He's disruptive and I don't like it. And, you know, so fast forward, you know, to high school and Bruce is in high school and he was in a self-contained life skills program by then. And I was a peer tutor my senior year in the life skills program. And um, I actually got kicked out from being a peer tutor because I was playing, they had like a soft football and Bruce liked to play catch and I was playing catch with him in the classroom. And I didn't realize that that would piss off the teacher a lot. And then, so the teacher came in and saw me doing that. She's like, get out of here. You can never like peer tutor again. So then, you know, fast forward to college, I went to U of O, I got my degree in psychology because I really interested in um, how people think and just getting to know people and seeing how you can help in that field. And so I got my undergrad in psychology and I did a year of a mix of family human services and graduate psychology and um, a little bit of pharmacology in graduate school. I took some classes in those areas, mostly in counseling, graduate level counseling for about a year. And I realized that I, I started having like hesitations. Like I didn't really know if I wanted to be a counselor. I don't think I would have been the greatest counselor because you know, you're mostly supposed to listen. And I don't know that I'd be able to stop myself from giving people advice, but you, that's like kind of a no-no to give direct advice right, in counseling. Right. So I was working in childcare centers. I worked at a nonprofit security first at the time. And I had a class of like, I was getting minimum wage, like eight bucks an hour. And I was the only adult managing a class of 15 kids. And so, and the kids were ages five to like 15 or five to 13, like all ages. And it was just like a madhouse. Cause I'm around here and it's, there's no curriculum. You're just kind of a daycare center. So you're just trying to help them stay occupied in healthy ways. And the only time they'd send in a second person to help is I had one kid I had to, um, go into the back with and supervise while he did insulin shots for himself. And then um, I asked for a raise for a couple years and they wouldn't give me a raise. So I'm working for eight bucks an hour for a couple years. And then I got on with um, Laney SD as an instructional assistant. One time a sub came through and her name was Linda. And she's like, Oh, you know, you should be working for Laney SD. It gives you benefits and pays like four bucks an hour more. And I said, okay, I'll give that a try. Now what's Lane ESD? It's the Lane Education Services District. So we have education services districts all throughout the state of Oregon um, for the different regions. And Lane ESD serves all of Lane County, and they provide a lot of special um, instructional services in our area. All the life skills programs in like the high school and middle school, I believe, pretty much are run by Lane ESD. There was a period when they ran all the element, all the life skills programs, but then some of the districts took back over some of them. So I guess like Willamette Life Skills, Bethel took that back. So that one's district operated, but Lane ESD at one time operated all the life skills programs and now they operate just most of them, I would say, or about half of them. Right. And so I was working with people with moderate to severe impacts from their exceptionalities. And um, they had a special position for me because they're short on subs all the time. They made me an at-large sub. So you work um, guaranteed work 30 hours minimum a week, but you go whatever places they want you to go. Right. And so by doing that for three years, I worked in like 15 different programs and I got married in 2006 and I, that was around the start of my time with Lane ESD. And then after two or three, three years of that, my wife says, you know, you ought to run one of those programs. You should go back and get your master's in special ed. 
And I said, yeah, I think I should. Cause you know, I was seeing people run programs and I'm like, I could totally do this. And I had ideas for improvement. But when you're a instructional assistant, a lot of, and especially if you're an at large sub and you're just going where they send you, you don't get to have a lot of input about how to improve the program. So there was things I saw that I always wondered, why are we doing this? Or this can't be that good for this kid. Like, why am I having, like I have a kid, I'm just supposed to walk him in circles basically around the school all day and then take him to the bathroom every hour. And then he had like a work system with poker chips and all he'd do is you open the container of poker chips and it had a little slot in the top and you'd dump it out on the mat and he would sit there on the carpet and like slobber every poker chip in his mouth and then put it through the slot. And I'm like, you know, what am I doing here? But right. so then I went back to school and I uh, went to Pacific University and they have a really good program. If you want to be a teacher, there's a satellite campus here in Eugene. And I like their program a lot because they have a paid internship as a part of that program. So you go to school for two years, but for most of the time they placed you in an actual job and you work as an intern and you get paid three quarter of a teacher's salary and you have a mentor. So I got placed at my current site. I haven't left in 14 years from that internship placement. And um, you get to work directly with the kids as you're learning about how to work more effectively with people, you know, with exceptionalities. And I was working with a guy who had stayed in high school until um, he was 20. It was in his last year of services because the way it works in life skills is you get educational services until you're 21. Like 18 to 21 is usually transition services. So you go to a transition program where they connect you with, you know, developmental disability service and the Office, office of Vocational Rehabilitation Services and supported employment opportunities and those kind of things to get you ready for adult life with the supports that you need. So, you know, I was just doing a lot of that kind of work and I was, but this kid had stayed in high school and he had been in a learning center, which is like for kids with more mild disabilities, but he had been in a car wreck and been in a coma and had lost his ability to talk and to move. And he was in a wheelchair and he had a big behavior file and it said the kid would throw tantrums. And I got to working with him and I realized he's throwing tantrums because he understands everything that people say and people are talking to him and treating him like he doesn't understand anything. So like in that one year of working with him, we got him a power wheelchair. I taught him how to drive one. He used to give me a run for the money. He would laugh at me and drive it off curves and do donuts in the middle of the street, like the intersection. Like that's part of the job, life skills sometimes. So I'm literally like picture me in the middle of a street red light turning green and I got a kid just laughing driving his power wheelchair in circles and we got him like these mesh bags that attach to your finger because uh, he couldn't swallow properly but he really liked regular food so you get these um, mesh bags that um, clip and you can put any kind of food in the holes in the bag are really really small so you can get the flavor and slowly dissolve things you know in the mesh bag so we the mission was drive your power wheelchair to like you know Safeway We'll find some of the food you want for your mesh bag and then let's drive back and you will have some of that and then he also was learning a computer to talk for the first time and he was also staying at this really um this like old folks home um called, called um south hills rehabilitation center and they were also not treating him really well like he wouldn't get out of bed till noon sometimes i did visits to his group to that um old folks rehabilitation center they would like do things like have the duck game on, but then park him with his chair facing the wall. And this was like 14 years ago. I don't know. They might be much better now, but sure. uh, we, we filed complaints against them and got them moved out of there. There's actually a couple students that we had filed complaints on their behalf and got them moved into proper group homes with like one or two other people. 
and not living in the old folks home and getting treated like, you know, they didn't understand anything. But in one year we had an OGCOM system. So like that's basically a computer people used to talk. Um, we got him a power wheelchair. We got him moved out of the group home that wasn't really taking care of him properly into a better home and he got a job and he still delivers packages in his power wheelchair today. Nice. And that was all in um, his last year of services. He would have aged out and not got any of those things. And I was documenting and recording and describing this experience I was having with him and the other students during my intern year and talking about it a lot in my classes at Pacific. And um, I got to be the keynote speaker. I was 4.0 student in Pacific. And um, when we did the graduation up in Forest Grove, I was the only speaker for like a class of almost 200 um, graduate students. Wow. It's also funny because of the work I did with him. Yeah, so this is a big reason that I wanted to have you on. You know, you've got a, an obvious passion for it and personal experience in in it. You know, it's and so thanks for sharing that. And I, you know, I wanted to touch on a lot of stuff today, so we got a lot to go over. So we're just going to get right into it. One of the biggest things in this current situation with the coronavirus is distance learning. You know, 4J, and I think basically most of the schools in our area have gone to 100% online, at least to start out, I think for the entire school year, is that true? I mean, no, they've only called it for fall term and they're gonna reevaluate a hybrid model um, for winter term and spring term, is my right. understanding. So but one of the, the things, you know, distance learning for uh, students with special needs is definitely a challenge. And unfortunately, you know, this is another example of where we were kind of asleep at the wheel because it's almost like it's too late to do too much. I mean, what is it that you would like to speak on as the real challenges of distance learning for special needs students? Um, I really feel like, you know, coming from a life skills perspective, I, I have a lot of students that can't really benefit in a significant way from distance learning only. And like when you're doing physical therapy with student or you're doing tube feeding or, you know, you're doing, partial physical assistance or we're training kids in the community to navigate the community safely or to stop at crosswalks or to be able to purchase something at a store or sometimes working with agoraphobia and just being able to enter a store without like having a panic attack and cooking and just vocational training. So much of what I do cannot be really replicated on distance learning. And then like with a lot of my um, students who are more severely impacted, you know, if they are distance learning from home, they, they, it's like their parents are therefore not able to work or they, they need full-time care so right and i mean i know that developmental disability services has been sending personal support workers into families houses this whole time to help with the support needs because you know it's a um, necessary service you know it's just as necessary as working in a grocery store is helping someone if someone needs help and they have disabilities and they need help to you know, whether it's maintain their home or manage their finances or go to a store or get groceries or cook a meal, if they don't have that support, you know, we can't just let people starve, so. Right. Yeah, it's difficult because, you know, now, and this is a different issue altogether, but now with the decimation to the economy from COVID, there's gonna be a lack of tax revenue that pays for a lot of the services that help. I mean, one of the things, uh, we had talked about off air is that you kind of, you can speak on this more, but you had talked about potentially having kind of a bridge between the educators and the service workers, you know, I mean, because what did you call them? Uh, uh, the they're called PSWs, they're personal support workers. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, there's always kind of been a bridge. Like I, I work with usually six or seven instructional assistants in the regular school year. And some of them are also personal support workers through DDS. And so the families can access direct support um, for non-school hours through DDS. And there's like a, an assessment they do with a bunch of questions called a K plan. And based on the answers to those questions, they come up with a number of hours that a person with disabilities needs um, support for in a month. And then those hours can be filled by DDS. So what I'm, I'm wondering, you know, and we're looking at where our instructional assistants might get hours cut. Like if you were working seven and a half hours with all different students doing the regular duties of life skills, and then we go distance learning, then the work for those seven instructional assistants might be half or even less. Like it's going to be hard to fill the hours if we're not providing physical therapy or basic, you know, the hygiene help or other things like that. So I'm wondering like, how are we going to keep people if we're doing this in the fall or maybe even the winter, and we're cutting people's hours to where they can't make enough money to survive, you know, working in public education, then what are we going to do for them? Like, are they going to all switch over to DDS? And then even if that happens, I mean, do we have school administration that's going to work with DDS to help support making sure all the families that need support get it? Because there's usually lines and delays and there's not always, you know, bureaucracy slows things down and having more administration sometimes in a bureaucracy or more people handling requests helps speed it back up. Right. And that's, I mean, this is, this is like I touched on before about how it's like we were all asleep at the wheel because, you know, it might be too late to, to fix this so fast. You know, uh, one of the other issues we had talked about that we wanted to at least address was the need for Wi-Fi, not only for you know, special needs students, but for all students. But talk a little bit about what has been in place in different parts of the area as far as uh, Wi-Fi for families that may not be able to afford it. I know that in some areas they've done remote hotspots, which is not a good approach because it's just putting Wi-Fi hotspots in like in a parking lot of a church or a school. And you wanted to speak on that a little bit. Absolutely, but I also just wanna speak on your comment that it might be too late to fix it and let you know that it's not too late. We're just getting started with all this, you know, what's going on in education. And we're hoping that this is like a bump in the road and not like a fundamental altering change to public education, or at least that's what I'm open, but I don't feel like it's too late. I feel like this year is really the ground zero or testing ground for how things can be. That's kind of what I meant. Like I, I was more referring to like, we can't, we can't allow it to just be a situation where we throw our hands up, you know, but no, we got to work hard and we got to figure out um, creative solutions for sure. And we got to be more creative than what's been some of the solutions for the Wi-Fi issue because my understanding from what I heard is that certain districts were doing things like parking buses with routers and parking lots and saying, if you don't have internet, come to these parking lots to do your homework. And I just find that um, that line of thinking is just flawed in a lot of ways. That's not equity. I mean, how many kids or families want to take kids? I mean, if you don't have internet, you probably have working parents, right? Who are working in the day. So how are they gonna drive you to the parking lot? Then we talk about stigmatizing, like in schools, you're not allowed to openly talk about which students get free lunch, you know, and you're not supposed, even teachers usually, unless you're like a life skills teacher like me, and you need to know that because you're helping kids navigate their accounts. Most teachers aren't even supposed to know like which students are on free lunch, but it's okay to send students to do their homework in a parking lot so that everyone knows they don't have internet, like that doesn't seem very equitable. In other districts, they're handing out hotspots, but they ran out, so there was big delays on the wire on the Wi-Fi hotspots. So not everyone 
got the computers at the same time. And then like, there's been all sorts of issues. They have an online survey to ask whether or not you have internet access. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So I'm calling students in life skills and their parents and I'm like, hey, do, do you need a laptop? And they're like, oh, probably, or even convince people. It's like, well, I have one laptop, but how many kids do you have? And do you use the laptop yourself for work? Well, yeah, I got three kids, one laptop, and I need that laptop for my work. So you still need to request three laptops. Or, you know, at least, you know, or at least one for, you know. Yeah, it's but, just, it, it takes leadership, you know, it takes people like you. We need more people like you. I don't know how many, how many are out there, <laughs> you know, so, so the step up and see these problems and, and look at efficiency, you know, how can we do this efficiently? How can we think? How can we use logic? And yeah, that's really, that's really difficult. You know, yeah, we know another thing logically that just I kind of wonder about is they did the survey in 4J and my understanding is about 60% of the parents said they would probably keep their students home for the whole year. So, and then there's this big question, well, how do we provide the space for when we come back? So I, I think logically it's kind of like, what, what if you surveyed all the staff and figured out who wants to do online, who wants to teach in person, did the same thing with parents and try to match, you know, like to like, would we have half as many kids anyway? Yeah. And I'm going to get to in a little bit. Uh, not only are you a teacher, you're also a husband and a father. So I want to get your personal take, kind of your personal perspective. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, as a teacher, you had just kind of touched on it. Uh, that There's kind of, you know, you've they they did a survey and it was kind of 50 50. Some wanted to do in person classes. So you had spoke off air about, you know, giving choice. The only thing I worry about is that there's like a guinea pig situation, you know, and we're not just talking about Oregon or Lane County because in Lane County, we're very fortunate that the numbers have been pretty low. It seems like a lot of people are taking COVID serious, wearing masks, social distancing, that kind of stuff. But what happens when a bunch of parents for whatever reason, and it's up to them, and we'll get to that in a bit about per personal perspective, what happens when they want to put their kids in school and the teachers want to teach, and then there's a massive outbreak? You know, well, so that's assuming that that we wouldn't be able to have the precautions that are necessary, you know, to prevent that. I mean, when we had a massive outbreak like this, I think it was in 1918 and they taught school outside. And I mean, so, yeah, there could be. But what I'd like to see is the same precautions that we have, like in a grocery store or at least some like what about putting up shields or oh, doing this for groups that are able to distance properly, providing the personal protective equipment doing proper health health screenings, you know, checking temperatures of kids coming in and teachers coming. In. I, I think that there's measures that could be done that would prevent a massive outbreak. Yeah, this is why we need to fund our schools, you know, because it's been decimated through funding. People are like, oh, they've got enough. And, and yes, there's a waste in administrative costs, but this is yet another example of why we need funding because all that all those, uh, you know, plexiglass and all that stuff costs money and it, and it I'm not trying to be like callous. Oh, that's expensive. But at the re and the reality is, is there's only so much to go around, you know. And so, yeah. Luckily, um, you know, I've I've heard that the governor, you know, Kate Brown, did allocate some funding to where we're starting this school off with the same amount of funding that we started last school off. Whereas without that allocation, it would have been like 20% budget reduction almost because of the loss of tax wages. Right. So I mean, we're still starting. We're starting from where we were budget-wise. I believe the same as last year. But we do have a lot of additional ex expenses, like those barriers cost money, as you say. Teaching in two different models, you know, costs money. Now we're going from one 
format to offering two different formats and allowing for more choice, then yeah, we should be funding the schools better. And that's why last year on May 8th, or was the year before that, that we had the Student Success Act um, rally and that we, the teachers all had that day where we gathered and advocated for that act to pass and it did pass. And ironically, the money from the Student Success Act was supposed to kick in, you know, this fall. So had all of this coronavirus outbreak not happened and, you know, we would be coming back to school with an actual increase that we um, were able to pass in Oregon for a large part due to the, you know, volunteer and activism of, you know, thousands of teachers across the state, OEA and everybody. So it should have been, I don't know, it's, it's, you know, you think about what could have been and it would have been a really positive year instead. Or Yeah, yeah. And it's just difficult because there's no, I mean, I, w I don't want to say there's no way that we could have planned for this because there definitely could have been. <laughs> you know, if there, there was more awareness, there's people that had the foresight to call it out uh, as far back as 2006, where they were talking about this being a very real possibility. And we could get into pointing the fingers on the federal level, but we're not going to do that. You don't want to talk about how the pandemic response team got cut like two years before the pandemic? I mean, we can, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous that that happened because, you know, there's so much out there that shows Obama was was warning that this was coming. And it was it's not something that that caught us off guard. Now, it is on the states too to do something, but. Like we talked about, there's just so much. I mean, states have to balance their budget. This is where the difference between the state and federal level. Just like us as citizens, we have to pay our bills at the end of every month. The federal government just prints new money, you know, you know, and and they have, they don't balance their budget. That's the issue. And unfortunately, there is no safe haven when it comes to the two-party system on who is going to balance their budget. You know, everybody says, oh, I like them because they're fiscally responsible. Well, where's that? I don't know if that actually exists on the federal level. So it's well, pretty we're at the highest um, deficit we've ever had currently. Oh, and it's just getting bigger, you know, and, and yeah, it's really scary. I mean, like you said, it's, it's, there's so many heartbreaking things about what's happening across the board, but like you said, we had optimism to come into this new school year with funding that was fought for. And now we have a whole different slew of issues that I'm sure. And, you know, I've been hearing, across the country talks of strike about teachers going on strike, you know, and, and different things because of their frustrations. And, and we'll see, it's going to be challenging. Now, what are some of the ideas that you've had for altering distance learning? Now you had mentioned about choice for parents, uh, you know, parents and teachers as well. What are some of the alternatives for specifically for special needs uh, students that you've thought would be beneficial in this uh, COVID situation? Well, you know, at the very least, we need to think about our instructional assistants and how to retain them and how to make sure that they're able to support students in whatever ways are allowed. So we know, for example, that through developmental disability services that PSWs can, um, or personal support workers can serve students in the community or, and in their home. Um, as a part of the special ed committee, we've met with the Oregon Department of Education multiple times and talked about their guidelines for um, ensuring equity during distance learning or during this kind of hybrid model. And they've talked about um, serving kids with the most significant impacts from disabilities in the school and just following all the same types of pro protocols that DDS follows, like maybe having, you know, not switching people around like we normally, I try to have all my instructional assistants work with the majority of kids and we switch on the hour or every couple hours. 
but during this situation, you'd probably just be keeping them paired up like one IA to one kid if you could. But I mean, if we're not, we could be bringing them into the school according to the ODE guidelines and just practicing proper distancing and screening. We could be supporting our IAs to sign up with DDS. Um, we could be doing community instruction. I think for all kids, not special ed, we ought to be sending um, hands-on kits. Like there's all these different kits and packages. I think we should be sending kinesthetic learning materials to families in the mail. And I think that we should, so that when, if I'm as a teacher is leading a Zoom session, then I should be like, okay, get out, I'll, you know, get out your materials and we're gonna go, we're gonna build this thing together or whatever it may be, but we need to get hands-on learning even in a distance model. I mean, and we also need to think about the fact that um, it's not healthy for our kids to be staring at screens all day. Right. And that we, before this pandemic hit, it was all about, you know, limiting the screens. Like my, from like now my kids want to play, you know, Roblox or Minecraft with their friends. And it's like, oh good, they're socializing with their friends. But back before the pandemic hit, it was like two hour, you know, one hour limit. And then, you know, then you're working in the yard, you know, and so that's kind of, that paradigm has shifted a little bit. And so I really, I think that um, we ought to be mailing kids the book, you know, like the hard copy book, instead of expecting them to read hundreds of pages on a screen. I mean, just lots of different, I, I wanna see innovation and creativity and I don't want it to be, you know, like it was in spring is a little bit explainable because it was not planned for, it was kind of emergency, but I feel like we're going in in the fall and I haven't heard a, big improvement in the planning. I'd like to see some real leadership from administration at the very least, give me a list of what I can potentially offer to kids, you know? Right. Now, and then the way we did our, our sped paperwork was interesting too, because the, a lot of districts said that you had to have an IEP meeting and completely rewrite the IEP to accommodate for distance learning. And that's absolutely ridiculous. Like imagine- What's IEP? That's an individual education program. So for kids on IEP, that sets the goals that they're going to work on for the whole year. It has a variety of goals that, you know, educating the whole child is usually strength-based because we're not trying to have a lot of power struggles. And, you know, with students with disabilities, we really want to expand areas of strength, especially for kids with developmental disabilities who are older. And that's just like, the, it's a team of whoever's supporting the students. Specialists are a part of the team. Parents are a part of the team. Teacher and the student is part of the team and they get to talk about the goals that they want to achieve. And it's just basically um, a process where we're putting out the annual goals and they usually align to alternative achievement standards. And we, what, it's setting what we're working on for the whole year. Right. So the idea that you would take that plan and redo it to fit in a disaster or emergency type of situation is problematic on a lot of levels. Like a lot of parents don't want to change their whole student's plan. I mean, a lot of, you'd be taking off on some cases, three quarters of a kid's IEP and they know that that's not what their kids need. So it just puts us in a really weird negotiating spot. And it's also a lot of paperwork. So what we did instead at last uh, in the spring, we looked at every option we could provide, which back then was, you know, we'll send you mail in packets and we'll support you through online instruction in Google classroom and we'll do video instruction. What do you want? Do you want mail-in only? Do you want online only? Do you want both? Do you want neither? And we would call and just talk this out with all each set of parents or parent or guardian. And um, based on what we agreed on that conversation, we would send them a prior written notice, which is something that you have to send at the end of any change um, that happens in a special ed system. You have to send what's called a PWN or a prior written notice. And um, that 
is something that informs them that we're changing the program and the ways that we um, discuss. So ours just said, you know, due to the pandemic and distance learning being mandated by the governor, we're gonna serve your student on these goals in this way. We're not gonna work on these goals because it's not necessarily possible. Right. And just have it aligned to what the parents want. But like a prior written notice is one or two pages. An IEP and life skills can be 30 pages. So it's a, that's the difference. And I don't think anybody in a pandemic really wants the teachers to be forced on or to be focused on paperwork compliance rather than helping the family and the kid. Right, exactly. Because you well, can't do both. There's, there's only so many hours in the day. And that's something I wanted to touch on before I get into kind of your personal perspective as a parent. You know, for teachers, expectations for teachers. I mean, are teachers expected to do more now than ever? And is there, do you feel that there is a sense of leadership at least that's kind of guiding everybody or are teachers kind of out on their own? Um, it's a little bit of a mix, but you know, in Oregon, it's really interesting. Like ODE puts out these guidelines and says, it's like, you could do this, you or you could do this. But if these two things are not possible, you don't have to do any of them. It's like, that's kind of how the guidelines go. And then the guidelines say, they don't tell you who's responsible for making the decisions of what is and what isn't possible. And so they're not, in other states, I've heard like the Department of Education is very strict, like we're doing this, everybody get on the same page. Right. But in Oregon, it's more like everyone has their little special ed kingdoms. It's like Game of Thrones and special ed, <laughs> you know, and so you don't really know what all, all the districts have a lot of flexibility. It's not clear who's making the critical decisions. And based on the, you know, the quality of the administrators that you have, you might get a lot of support or you might get basically no support, so. Right, which is a trade-off because I know that uh, sometimes unconventional methods can be beneficial. And so when you're not handcuffed to a certain style of curriculum, I'm sure that there's benefits. But in this situation, a one-size-fits-all approach, well, that never works, but a one-size-fits-all. But when there's just guidance, you know, I think it's really beneficial. So I wanted to talk to you as a, as a father you know, the, your parents' perspective. I want to make sure that we at least comment on how this is a really difficult time. You know, there's, it's really confusing. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation coming from every angle on, you know, I, on the science of this. There's a lot of people that are doubting it with, the, you know, COVID and the or coronavirus. What is your personal opinion on if you would want to send your kids to school? I would want to, well, you know, it's not just my personal opinion because I've been married for the last 14 years. So it's a collaborative decision, which is in some respects a lot harder than if you just are making the decision on your own or, but maybe yeah. it's not, but you know, if it, me personally, it's kind of ironic. Like my kids are pretty healthy. I make sure that they exercise. Like we believe that if you even start to get looking a little sick, like a cough or a runny nose, we cut out all the sugar and load heavy on vegetables. We believe food is medicine. Um, to an extent, like my son had perfect attendance. It's kind of ironic. He had perfect attendance in school until distance learning. And then he like tried to get away with not doing math and he got marked absent in one out of six classes for a week. So, you know, distance learning ruined my kid's perfect attendance streak. You know, not like that matters, but sure, sure, sure. I just think it's kind of funny. But um, I think my kids being eight and 12 and I think it should be that they should have input on the decision. And I've talked to both of them and they would go back. They would like to go back as, you know, with cautions, both my kids wear masks and are pretty good about washing their hands. And, you know, what I don't want to see is I don't want to see education 
fundamentally and permanently altered to be less equitable forevermore. You know. Right. So we but, still, yeah, yeah. But, but my but, wife might have different opinions. So you know, ultimately, I, it's a team decision of our family, and we're going to respect everybody's opinion. If it was up to me, and hybrid learning became an option. Um, I, and my kids wanted to go back. I want to support them to be brave. I don't want to teach my kids to live in total fear. You know, I've, I've seen some of my friends, you know, I, and their kids are really freaked out. Just, and parents are handling it differently. I've had, you know, I believe in kind of a pod theory. So I would let my friends hang out with certain kid of their friends. I know I shouldn't probably say that. I'll get all sorts of people hating. No, that's how, that's how I do it too. You know, there's a select group of people that we're just like, we're going to mitigate the risks and these are going to be our, our quarantine friends, you know, because I think that you'll go crazy otherwise. And and you yeah. just have to know, you have to understand, you can't deny risks, you know. I mean, people are doing that, but that's a whole different issue. No, I I agree. I want to touch on this just real quick. Uh, I have a ton of respect for you, Nels, because I went through when I was looking, I make a flyer for every episode. And usually I just take a picture where there's enough room to put some some text around it of the individual I'm interviewing. I could not find a picture of just you. Every single picture you have is with your your kids, which I'm not going to put on for security reasons, your wife, you know, and I just thought out of their privacy, I wasn't going to put a, a plastered picture of them. But it's a pretty cool thing. And it's pretty telling that what matters to you isn't just like you had mentioned, it's a team effort, you got to come to that conclusion. And it's pretty cool to see somebody that is a, a husband and a father before anything else. And so I just want to touch on that, that I, that I, I thought that was pretty neat, because most people's Facebook pages including myself, have a ton of pictures of themselves. And people navigate that differently because of privacy. You know, I mean, I'm friends with so many people on Facebook that I'm like, they don't need to know my family. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm but, okay with you using a picture of my wife and I. I'm sure she wouldn't mind, you know. I got a good one. But yeah, I just thought, it, I just wanted to mention that, you know, and, it, and it's cool to hear you say that about, about, you know, well, this isn't just my decision, you know, and I, and I hope people are, you know, the benefit of being with somebody, having a life partner, is that you can bounce ideas and it's not all on you also, you know, that you can actually have some, some, some feedback and, and to make that decision. But yeah, there's a lot of parents out there that, that, like you said, are freaked out. And, and the kids are freaked out. The kids are super freaked out. Like I've been around, you know, there's certain kids. I even work with a kid, you know, I have students who I've heard who have autism and, you know, if they go out and someone's within 10 feet of them, they start screaming murderer and run away. I mean, there, there's kids that are, yeah. really freaked out there's parents that are really freaked out there there's families that don't allow their kids to hang out with anybody at all and you know and that's their choice but i, I that's not the choice that i'm going to make for my family because i'm don't want to teach them that level of fear like yeah. reasonable precautions i don't think that um so i'm in favor of mask you know mandate in the store and community indoor public spaces and you know but i'm not in favor of like mandating masks when we're hiking outside you know, I think you, you kind of step off the trail, hold your breath. But to me, that's kind of a line, you know, for me. But yeah, I've read some stuff and I'm sure it's scare tactics. But I, but um, I've read some stuff about, you know, the trade off. It's like we can send our kids back to school, but then we're going to have to wear masks at home. <laughs> and we just know that's not happening. You know, I'm just like, that's ridiculous. I mean, I don't they know. Can't, they don't have any authority to regulate what you do or don't do inside your own home, you know, unless you're harming someone else. And I think that it's a stretch to say that not wearing a mask in your own home is harming somewhere else, someone else. And I don't think that that, I don't even know if that's factual information or if that's oh, yeah. your tactics. No, no, for, yeah. And there's a ton but, you know, of, I tell you one, one of oh, go ahead. sorry, I'm interrupting you. Go ahead. No, go ahead. 
I just wanted to say, you know, touch back on, you know, being married for the last, you know, 15 years almost. And that, you know, I talk to a lot of students in the high school because I have peer tutors who come into. We started a peer tutoring program as a part of life skills. So all every day, I'm, every period, I might have three to five peer tutors come in and who also help me do the work in a normal situation and who learn about special ed. And sometimes they ask me about relationships or they ask me if I have any advice for them. So I just wanted to tell you that what I tell them is, you know, marriage is a lot about compromise. But if your partner is trying to get you to do something that you hate, that's not compromise, that's capitulation. And, and I don't, you don't have to be, do things you hate. You should never have to do anything you hate to make your partner happy. And that's, that's kind of a good warning that the relationship is abusive. Sure. Or, and that goes both ways. I mean, if somebody, if you're telling somebody that you want something out of them and they're just not feeling it and you're forcing it on them, then you got to have that presence of mind to know it's like, what kind of, what kind of person am I being to this person? You know, if I'm, if I'm making them do it, but yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a good thing to, to teach to young people, especially, you know, to have enough, uh, to look out for themselves enough that they're not just people pleasing constantly. I know I've been guilty of that and I've been on both sides of that, you know, but yeah. So Nels, it's really cool talking to you. Uh, I'm inspired by the work that you do and the passion that you have for it. One of the things that you've done in the past, and I, I look forward to seeing your posts again about you'll leave extra tickets cause you'll invite, uh, every couple times a year, you'll invite, uh, all the kids to the, to go to a basketball game, you know, an Oregon Ducks basketball game or a football game. And sometimes kids can't make it different things. And so you'll have extra seats. And that's one thing I always see on your Facebook feed is the posts like, Hey, there's some extra tickets. If you want to come sit with us. And that's a bummer that that's not happening this year. So hopefully basketball, I know that I think the PAC 12 football is canceled. I know that, but I think basketball, they're just postponing it till 2021 as of right now. So it could still happen, but yeah, I don't know how many people would. We, we had about 300 people at the last year's basketball game. I, I have a friend who runs the um, – he works in the ticket office, and he's really high up, so he's helped me connect with the U of O, for, and they donate. Um, usually the youth groups for football donate 20 youth tickets and five chaperones, so we've done a football game almost every year for the last, you know, 10 years. And then the basketball game has grown every year. We started with, like, 30, 40 people and up to about 300 last year so just um and for people with disabilities and their families and people who work in special education and their families it's and a pretty big that, event. yeah i think because going to a sporting event is a good life skill and it's something that uh, we've had kids who were terrified of going to a game and then they go to a game and it becomes their favorite thing ever and that's also you know life-changing for someone um if you figure out the more things you figure out you like that you didn't know you liked just the more enriched your life becomes sure and really, if you like sports and you follow sports, that's something that, because you know, a lot of times people um, that I work with or almost all the students I work with have some kind of communication deficit and they struggle with coming up with what to talk with, with other people about. So, you know, if you like the trailblazers, all of a sudden, you know, we got something in common that we can talk about. We can talk about that one point victory last yesterday and, you know, you had to throw it in. No, and that's so true. I mean, I'm a huge sports fan, so I've done things in different capacities. My high school job was working at the Eugene M's games. And I've always known there was uh, people with special needs of all ages that were passionate about the M's, you know, would know every stat, every player. And I think that it's so beneficial. And so there's just so much that's heartbreaking about what's going on right now, because being a part of that team, 
you know, as a fan, but some of them have kind of uh, uh, roles, you know, there was employees that worked that, that were special needs that, that were awesome, brought a lot to the table, you know, and, and ah, I just can't wait to have that back, the community feel. You know, it's going to really devastate our community not having the Oregon Duck football games. And, and a lot of the work, a uh, good friend of mine, uh, he has cerebral palsy. He's worked security at the games, uh, you know, and it's, it's fulfilling for him because he is on disability. He can't work a lot, you know, but he can work a few days a year and, and it gives him some, some, a real sense of pride, you know? So there's a lot of stuff that's, that's going to be, that's going to be hard this year, but we're all kind of having to band together and remember that we're not in this alone, you know, so. Absolutely, you know, like a, a week ago, one of my students who's like, former students who's like 25, 26 now called me randomly. He'll call me like three times a year. So he calls me, he's like, there's no football. Did you hear no football game for you not take your students? And I'm like, yeah, it's all right, man, you know, next year. And he's like, will there be basketball? I want to go. And I'm like, I always invite him, you know, because I invite, um, students who age out too in their families he's like but I am worried there'll be no basketball and it's like this is a kid who had major behavior like anger issues and I'm like yes but it's nothing to get upset about you know like sure. stay calm so here I am like seven years later still like talking to the kids and I mean I'm pretty, I, I get pretty upset if there's no basketball so I can relate oh, to him man. I can relate to him so yes, I got a kid yelling I got an adult with disabilities yelling at me about no basketball on the phone but you know it's all love so right right <laughs> Well, I appreciate the work you do, Nels. You're a pretty inspir inspirational guy. You know, uh, it's pretty cool to see where you've came, how far you've came. We met when we were probably in our, probably 20, 21, you know? So we've known each other for quite a few years now and it's cool to see the, the man that you've became. Uh, I'm gonna end this with a song and I wanna touch on it a little bit about why I chose it. So this is a song by my buddy, Joey Helpish of Dandyland Studios. And it's kind of funny, colorful, I wouldn't say colorful language, it's a goofy song. He does a project, he, Joey is very open about how he is on the spectrum and he works with uh, a lot of different uh, young people, people uh, with autism and, and on the spectrum with disability, uh, special needs to teach them music and writing and so one of the things he does is he works with young kids where he does uh songwriting workshops well he'll record the song but they kind of help him and he shows them through remotely now but through uh screen sharing kind of the apps like on an ipad and teaches people of all ages how to write music for themselves well one of the cool things about joey and i think you would relate to this to an extent uh, Joey is actually very unconventional, so he'll challenge the way that the norms and the way that he goes about things. So he's willing to have uh, young people kind of help him write the lyrics. And when he's working with people that are five, six, seven years old, of course, their favorite word is poop. <laughs> you know, so the song that he wrote, and I thought it was pretty fitting, is called "Why Is Coronavirus Pooping on My Life?" Why did coronavirus poop on my life? Love it. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. And so I thought I would play that. So if you're interested, you can look up Dandyland Studios on Facebook. And I will put in uh, in the show notes for this, the link to his Facebook page. And Joey Helpish is, is his name. And you can look and follow him on Facebook as well. He does some great stuff. So I thought it was a good song to, put, to pick for the end of this. Nels Pasternak, I really appreciate you. Thank you for sharing some of your thoughts on this. And and keep up the good work. I know this is going to be a challenging year. And then, like you said, this is the beginning. This is ground zero. So as far as uh, what the future holds for education, I know that you're vehemently against 
going more and more and more into a, a distance learning only approach. I think that's a terrible approach. And so we'll, we'll, we'll have you back on in the future and we'll talk about, you know, what the future holds for education and what kind of awareness we can raise so that people see the benefits of funding it. <laughs> you know, we just can't, we have to just remember that it's, we need to kind of work on the administrative costs, but that's- a We also need to work on the, the, some of the administrative philosophies. You know, I don't know if I told you, but I, I got my administrative license and was, I'd worked as an administrator a couple summers and um, in the program of being an administrator where I was learning, they were, there was this book that they're touting called From Good to Great. And the quote from the book is, some administrators, like I wanted my teachers to be excellent. So when a very good teacher came up for tenure, I denied them because they just weren't great enough. And that's like taught to us as a good philosophy of an administrator. I don't know. I think if you're good at your job, you deserve security. I think that kind of attitude's really um, flawed. And there's, that's one of the reasons, but there's a lot of reasons why, even though I got my administrative license, I decided to stay as a teacher because I just don't adhere to some of the administrative philosophies that we have. Well, you know, we need more order. people. We need more people in the top levels that are making the decisions with the teacher's best interest in mind. So maybe down the road, that'll something be something that you want to get into. But yeah, so we'll have a lot more to talk about. We'll have you on again down the road. So I appreciate I you. you. I appreciate you a lot. Thanks for doing this, Nels. So this is Joey Helpish of Dandyland Studios with Why Did Coronavirus Poop on My Life? Stop messing with me.